episode of the Social Review Podcast. Joining me this week, we have... Joe or Steamed Hams on Twitter. Eugenie or at MemesTD on Twitter. Hi, my name is Miriam and my Twitter username is at MRWTCH. Miriam, thank you so much for coming on uh, to the podcast, joining us. Um, Miriam is the National Chair of Young Labour, um, joining us to talk drugs policy this week. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I've done that thing again where I forgot to say my Twitter handle. So I've just said it's joining me and people, you guys have no idea who I am. Well, you might have an idea of who I am if you've listened to the podcast before. I'm Jasper at JasperCH on Twitter. I love how <laughs> just, like confident you are that people know who you are. <laughs> With two podcasts in. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I, I maybe a bit of a... Um... Huge Troy McCool mood. <laughs> 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 so, Michael Gove's campaign for the Tory leadership has imploded pretty much after revelations that he took cocaine uh, several times around 20 years ago, whilst he was also writing articles saying that um, we shouldn't legalise cocaine. Um, in regards to drug policy, is the problem here the drugs themselves and the law enforcement surrounding it? You know, should drugs remain illegal, specifically Class A drugs, and should it just be better enforced against politicians like Michael Gove? You know, should Michael Gove have gone to prison over this? Should he go to prison over this? Um, or is it a question of legalising them and liberalising them? Um, what do we think? So the maximum sentence for possession of cocaine is seven years, and I don't think anybody seriously thinks Gove should go to jail at all. So either we think certain people should get special special dispensation or we all admit that something is wrong with our drug laws. Um, there was a, a statistic, I think it was John Ashworth on um, Ridge on, and on Sunday who um, said that uh, almost there are almost double the number of deaths from drug, drug overdoses in this country than there are from road deaths. Um, and the UK is actually like the market leader in drug-related deaths. So twenty percent, twenty-eight percent of drug deaths uh, in the entire EU take place in the UK, um, while the UK accounts for only about twelve percent of the population of the EU. Um, so there is certainly something there that suggests there is uh, an inconsistency or a failing in UK drugs policy, and you can sort of see that in the way that governments have this habit of ignoring the scientific evidence you see that with like the professor nut um instant um when alan johnson was home secretary um so to me it looks like it there's a fairly conclusive case that drug policy in this country isn't working um and and i think if um we can see anything from the tory leadership race it's in that it exposes that hypocrisy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I feel like this whole episode says so much about how class and privilege like determines how we view drugs. If you are white and privileged, you can get away with it. But if you are anyone else, addiction is treated like a crime rather than an illness, which which it is. Um, and Joe's point about the unnecessary deaths we see is so important. And when you look at the prison population, um, the number of people who are stuck in prisons um, because of drug offences is staggering and so many of these people also suffer from awful injustices like um, poor standards of education experience of people referral unit um economic deprivation um but when we when we talk about the tory leadership candidates it seems sort of sort of a nice quirk that one of them's done cocaine or like 
you know, had opium at a wedding when actually for a lot of people in a different circumstance, that is, you know, seven years in prison. Miriam, I completely agree with you. You know, what the news this week and the coverage of it has been so emblematic of the way that, you know, our relationship with people who are accused of drug-related offences is impacted by class and um, uh, uh, ethnicity. And what interests me is the... uh, I don't know if if everyone else knows, but about the drug laws in Portugal. So in 2001, um, Portugal becomes the first country to decriminalise the possession and consumption of all illicit substances. So this is kind of far beyond kind of marijuana legalization in the states for instance um so instead of being arrested basically if you're caught with drugs in portugal a personal supply you might you might be given a warning or a small fine or you have to appear before a kind of local commission which could include a doctor a lawyer and a social worker so it's drugs policy which is um formulated around treatment harm reduction and kind of support services for people who are suffering and you know what miriam was saying also about the prison population i think one of the important things that is associated with um, illicit drug use and the criminalization of drug use is HIV infection, infection rates. And um, the one of the most significant things that came out of Portugal was the opioid crisis stabilized and HIV and hepatitis infection rates, as well as overdose deaths and other drug related crimes and uh, deaths and injuries uh, fell. Um, HIV infection uh, reduced from, um, let's have a look, in 2000 it was 104.2 new cases per million and in 2015 that number had gone down to 4.2. So I think Portugal is an interesting example of how a reformulation of drug policy could potentially see great social benefits but it's interesting to me that you know the Labour Party as it stands seemed to have uh, no interest, certainly not in the last couple of manifestos, even under Jeremy Corbyn, who you'd think if there was ever a Labour leader who might be able to push for uh, drug drug liberalisation uh, policies. You know, no- nothing has come of that yet. So I would be very keen to see Labour potentially uh, reformulate the policy from here. Joe, what you said at the beginning, like nobody seriously thinks Michael Gove is going to go to prison is completely correct. And it, you're right, it points out the flaw in our um, in our drug laws if if we're going to have laws, then those laws should be held in place by the expectation that they be enforced. And if the expectation that they are going to be enforced um, fades away, then it begs the question of whether the law should be there in the first place. Um, Eugenie, what you were saying about Labour moves nicely onto what I wanted to talk about next. Um, It seems like we're all kind of in agreement that drugs policy should be reformed and some kind of legalisation, liberalisation should probably take place. Um, So what do we think there's room for this in the socialist utopia? Um, like, what would a Labour policy on drug liberal- liberalisation look like in practice? Um, Miriam, what do you think? I think it would have to be firmly based in evidence. And Eugenie's point about um, Portugal is really important. I think decriminalisation is probably the best possible option. Um, and, and looking at the way in which we treat addiction as a addiction as an illness and not a crime, um, and, and I agree that it's a massive gap in our policy at the moment um, and we need to look at things like I mean I would support the legalisation of marijuana um, I've, I've never done drugs I'm incredibly boring mainly because I'm really asthmatic and I'm worried about my lungs but don't worry I'm the same <laughs> yeah 
Um, we can be but, straight edge here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but like, honestly, I think we do need to decriminalise. We also need to put a lot more funding into things like um, treatment for people with um, drug addiction, um, resources, including like um, housing and centres um, where we're, in which like people can have access to things like methadone and ways of like helping them with addiction rather than criminalising them when they're in that struggle and that, that terrible position. And also I think it has a massive impact on the, the supply chains of drugs. Um, the impact that um, the drugs trade is having both on our streets and also abroad is huge and it's something you can't ignore. Um, and if we can sort of take money out of the criminal economy and help, you know, people on our streets, it, it would make a massive difference. How far do we think any kind of legalization, liberalization should go? You know, are we saying no cane to cocaine? Ha ha. Uh, thank you, Eugenie. Uh, <laughs> uh, or should uh, cocaine be legalized as well? I guess we've got a, a different different examples from different countries, and you can see varying levels of success and failure there. Wouldn't interest me about the American legalization, you know, in certain states of um, marijuana. Is it um, California, Vermont? I'm not going to try and list them off the top of my head because I'll embarrass myself. Um, uh, is that it doesn't necessarily lead to uh, a decrease in kind of drug arrests. Instead, you end up in this kind of quite bizarre world where, you know, in states where it's legal now, you have... Yo, let's be honest. A lot of um, a lot of white upper middle class people who can afford to buy marijuana from dispensaries, uh, being able to kind of smoke that openly in public and kind of engage with it, post it on their Instagram accounts and all the rest of it. When you know you see mass incarceration of people who uh, were caught with very small amounts, you know, and were criminalised and you know, have had their lives irrevocably changed by um, having very small you know, small amounts of drugs, part of the kind of just say no, um, one strike and you're out uh, system that especially became popular in America in the in the 80s. Drug decriminalization would have to come with maybe potentially some kind of amnesty or pardons for people who are currently suffering in our prison system and, you know, and having come out of our prison system as well uh, from the effects of laws which you know, have usually targeted people from ethnic minority and a working class backgrounds, not the Michael Goves of the world. So in the, in the talk of um, legalization, liberalization, I guess there's a more academic theoretical point in there of, is it acceptable for a government, the state to legalize um, and allow something uh, to be to become widespread that will, on the probability scale, possibly slash to probably cause um the individual who comes into contact with that something harm so such as cocaine it can lead to addiction it can ruin your life that kind of thing um well you have to ask if the status quo is not leading to more harm than um a policy of decriminalization would uh, stephen bush has a really great quote in his guardian piece um that he wrote in the aftermath of the michael gove revelations um, where he said it's true to say that taking cocaine is a deeply unethical habit. Its supply chains, both in the UK and around the world, are mired in violence and exploitation. But the reality is that democratic governments are more effective at persuading their citizens to cut down on legal behaviour that is bad for their health than they are at stopping it through criminalisation. So it's about the effective, um, um, how we can most effectively 
reduce harm and actually a policy of liberalisation of drug laws or decriminalisation of drug laws, um, all the evidence suggests would be the best way of reducing harm. I think people are always going to take drugs. Like, no matter if they're legal or illegal, there will always be an appetite for that. And I think the evidence shows that decriminalising and offering people the support and, you know, it's not like a Labour government would, like, legalise, decriminalise drugs, rather, not legalise, decriminalise drugs, and then just leave people in a vacuum. You'd also have to put money into things like, you know, services and education and so many other things. Um, and I think what we can see from the evidence is that the externalities are just so much better if it's not left to a criminal economy. Um, but, I mean, I agree that it's something you need to be mindful and, like, just make sure that the evidence is there when you're creating policy. That is why the um, Gove cocaine revelations presents such a problem, an existential problem for the Tory party, because uh, in terms of policy making, the Labour Party, the Labour government is significantly likelier to invest in those things to support drug decriminalisation, so education and mental health support, um, NHS, etc, etc, whereas the Conservatives are not. If they want to genuinely tackle this, then they have to make some changes to how they approach governance um or they could not genuinely tackle this and then that in itself is a problem because this ties right back to what we were saying at the beginning nobody seriously believes any of them are going to go to prison over this so you end up with completely ineffective laws which officially have to be enforced but aren't really enforced yeah and the irony of it all is like with tory cuts like the police service can't actually enforce a lot of these laws anyway so, I mean, what's the point in the being illegal if we're just giving greater support to, to you know, criminal act activity and not giving people the support for the services that they desperately need, like addiction support and other kinds of services? So, we're here today with Alex Sobel, MP for Leeds Northwest. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Nice. Yeah, so we're in the middle of the parliamentary conservative party's elections and i don't know if you've noticed but aside for some vat reworkings mm. and you know the usual kind of tinkering there's no ideas coming out of the modern conservative party why do you think that's happening well boris johnson going back to the old conservative party and the new republicans for his ideas were massive tax cut for the wealthy um i think that there's no new ideas because one they've clearly not got uh, an intellectual wing anymore, the Conservative Party, uh, and also they are completely and utterly bogged down in Brexit and in the internal Brexit divisions, which seem to now be between um, no deal and a hard Brexit deal. You know, nobody's really offering any credible solutions and they all are grasping to leave as soon as possible and at the latest 31st of October and nothing else seems to be permeating the Conservative leadership contest. Um, you just look at the Labour Party in comparison, you could be critical of the Labour Party, but all the time we're bringing out new ideas. Just um, today, Steve Reid brought out a civil society strategy. Every day things are coming out, new ideas, new strategies, um, the beginnings of uh, a reshaping of society, really, which takes into account technology, uh, and also the climate emergency and how we need to respond to that now we need to reshape society uh, to do that. But the Conservative Party are living, unfortunately, 
in a world pre-1974. Hmm, absolutely. And there's a real necessity for us to have these policies because as much as there is the reaction to the current, the struggles that people are having, mm. we've got to be able to offer something positive. And in the Tory party, we've always had economic pessimism, basically, yes. where, you know, oh, we can't afford this. We, you know, we can't do this. We're going to have to cut back. We're going to have to cut back. But with the Brexit party now offering a positive sort of reactionary position, how do we best combat that? Because if we're the ones that are offering a yeah. radical, you know, a radical, not quite as optimistic, then we're going to get, you know, there's some issues there. It's, I mean, it's very difficult. I mean, the the rise of right-wing populism, not just in Europe, but across the world, um, it is, is the challenge for the left. The old school conservatives are much less a challenge to the left um, and are dying, dying off, you know. You know, Germany is probably the last bastion of that politics, and that is soon to be replaced. And we'll see by by what, by whether it's by mm. liberalism or right-wing populism. But um, so the left have to take that on, and have to actually live effectively in the future. So we need a vision that that isn't a vision of how the world is now or was yesterday, but is how it's going to be tomorrow, and react and respond to that and shape that world which the right-wing populists don't do. And the problem with that, electorally, is that you're going to appeal less and less to older people, whereas mm. right-wing populists appeal more to them. And so there's always a battle in electoral politics and in, in, in modern democracies that it's whose vote, but unless you're in Australia where mandatory voting, it's <laughs> whose votes you turn out. So, you know, for, for Labour and Labour's ideas to win, we need to have... And, and we might come on this later. We need to have a have not just ideas that that will shape that future, but also culture that young younger people. And by younger, I don't mean under twenty fives. I mean really people under the age of fifty. You know, people up to an age where their children are still at school. That's mm. when we are younger people. You know, who are thinking about their children's future as well as their own. And then young people who are emerging. You know, through the education system into the world of work up the first rungs of that ladder you know that whole range of people mm. you know um, really we're talking about generation x millennials generation z that whole gamut of people which it which is enough easily enough to win an election if those people turn out at the same level as baby boomers absolutely yeah. well it's kind of like if you can establish the contradictions that the current workforce are experiencing and tell them yeah. the next lot don't have to have it like this mm. we can change yeah. it that is Essentially. Yeah, and it's not just about work, obviously. It's about the housing market. It's about the mm. transport market, which is where the idea is the left, actually. What what, what have what right-wing populists got to solve um, the, the crisis of, you know, the cost of transport and the lack of connectivity? Nothing. What have the right-wing populists got to solve the housing crisis? What mm. they've got is, well, immigrants shouldn't have your houses. That's not a solution to the housing crisis. The solution to the housing crisis is a huge social house building program and those houses are built in factories out, out of wood and other materials providing low carbon modular homes which are cheap or, or negligible in fact to heat that's what the left have got to offer and you can see you know the easy reactionary solutions versus big ideas that are, are, are there out there but they're not at scale so the left need to scale up their ideas with regard to the changing nature of work does Richard Tice's quote about renationalising British steel into a John Lewis-style mm. ownership model, does that make you nervous? I mean, first of all, 
if it was a John Lewis style model, it wouldn't be renationalising it. It would be putting it into public ownership, and actually, it would be putting it into workers' ownership. Uh, nationalising effectively means state ownership from the centre. And I think the big, I tell you, I tell you where the big um, fault lines are on the left. They're not between should should we um, effectively change capitalism and have uh, a society where things are owned by the many, not the few. We're all we're all there in that place. We all think we want to be owned by the many. But I don't consider eight people in Whitehall and three in Downing Street to be the many. That's still the few. It's just a different few mm. with different motives and, and motivations. The many are uh, the community, you know, the Welsh water model, the workers, the John Lewis model, although the governance might need a bit of work, uh, um, the cooperative model where the workers and the consumers you know are are in ownership you know the cooperative group model or or another plethora of models where actually your 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 ownership is diffuse and then your governance is democratic and that's that's what my wing of the Labour party want and that's where the battle is in the left and there are other people who very much particularly i'd say and this might get me in trouble older people who've joined the party who who that previous model of ownership is some sort of nirvana to them, although it clearly wasn't at the time. And there's an argument and a battle to be had over those ideas that we get to the point where, where if you say nationalise, everybody knows what you mean. That's the state owning it from the centre. And if you say public ownership, that means the many owning it mm. with democratic models. And I always, always talk about public ownership. I never talk about nationalisation. Nationalisation is a transitional demand. So <laughs> yeah, I get that, and you can. There is the argument to be made that you know nationalisation in order to then redistribute yeah. it, that kind of middleman yeah. approach. I mean, I mean, there's some practical elements to that. So, quite a lot of the things that are in the private sector, it would be very hard for the consumers or the workers to, to take it out of the hands of the private sector. Only the state could do that. But the state would, after a very short transitional period then move it into that model it's a means necessary to an end but it should be very short and it should be legislated upon that you're taking it you're taking it back to public ownership and then it goes back out i mean we've got at the moment we're about to have um, a big battle over northern rail so i've been building up for this months they haven't replaced the old pacer trains which just busts on on rails and um there and um it's owned by deutsche bahn um and um that deutsche bahn don't want to own it anymore the, they, there doesn't seem to be a buyer. The investment seems to be falling. The company looks like it might fall over. So you know we're getting to a point actually where that after LNER, so it all seems to be hitting. You mm. know, Mikeysitch seems to be the nexus of this, and Yorkshire seems to be the nexus of this. You know, LNER, which travels through Yorkshire and, and Northern Rail, which is our main local rail provider. You know, are are potentially going to come into public ownership. But we need to think in the long term. We have a Labour government. LNER, Northern, the other rail franchises, that's fine where they are now they want, if they've moved into public ownership. But what's the governance model going to be in the future? So how do you balance this kind of very clear ideological ideal and the constraints of parliamentary democracy? Because that's one thing that definitely comes into play with regard to, you know, I'm not, I don't yep. want to mention it, but Brexit. You yep, know, we, have, sure. we all have our goals and a lot of them are shared. But where the mechanics differ, that's really a big source of contention. How do, how do you balance that? I, th- I think that if you have the public mood on your side and you put it in your manifesto and they, you get elected to be the government, then you deliver it. Even with a slim majority, you deliver it. I mean, it becomes an issue of contention where 
what you've put in your manifesto is either undeliverable, which is where the Tories heading with Brexit, mm. to be honest. But you you generally don't put things in your manifesto which your own MPs will not vote for. Yeah. You know, um, obviously we're in a minority government now. There might be minority governments future. Then then these things become difficult and diffuse, and you need to build coalitions. But that's why the public's important. That's why, for instance, you know, I support I support some of the campaigns, although. We might not always agree on the detail, on the granular detail, but, you know, campaigns like We Own It, for instance, which is a campaign about public ownership, um, and other campaigns, uh, you know, and that helps build public support. So, actually, having public support is really important, and that's how you can overcome some of the barriers. So, talking about building these, this public support and these other campaigns, you've got momentum that have come out for a you know, four-day week, yeah. come out for the ending of detention centres. Yeah. Now... The first time I think we ever spoke was when I had advocated for for the people I know yeah. to vote for the momentum slate on the NCC, coupled with Stephen Lapsley yeah. as a sort of open Labour momentum mm. slate. What is your view on a sort of coalition between those two groups? Assuming that the, yeah. if we take you know as an assumption that the CLGA kind of drifts away from mm. momentum a little bit. Is there the option there? Is is that something that think, you've thought about? Well, I mean, you, 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 there's two different things there. One's momentum's policy perspective, and it's interesting that they never had different policies to lay part until this point. Now they're trying to lead on some of these. I think the detention centre issue, I mean, you get a very broad level of support within the Labour Party. Uh, you know, even people, MPs who are progress MPs, if you like, um, would 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 support the ending of detention centres, and the SNP would support the end of detention centres, and I don't know about the Liberals, but who whoever knows about the Liberals, um, and 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 that'd be very broad, you know, and 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 there'd be nobody I know in Open Labour would ever say no, no, we don't agree with that. So, in essence, that's that's actually, um, you know, the blue Labour types that's who'd have yeah. the issue with it, you know, so. Um, it is. It's got a broad appeal. The four day, the four day week's interesting, and in, in because if it's like some of the ideas that you get from the Green Party, you all very think, well, if you've got a certain sort of lifestyle, a certain sort of income level, these are great ideas, you know. Um, but actually, if you if you live in a council estate with three kids uh, and you and you've two parents or one parent on on minimum wage, then and you work three jobs and you work six days a week or six and a half days a week and you try and balance everything and your your mum who's retired gives you support your childcare and all of that somebody says oh we're going to bring a four-day working week in then how is that going to work financially so what i'm saying is that that i don't oppose what men i'm saying but it's not a properly fleshed out policy how does it work with lower income people even with a 10 pound 10 pound minimum wage living wage it still isn't it is i still think there would be lots of people at the bottom end of the income scale who are going to say we don't agree with the four-day working week because we couldn't possibly afford to live and you can't restrict our working hours. Um, also, MPs can never have a four-day working week and so I would say that it <laughs> should be an exempt group because you never get everything done in four days. MPs, staff maybe, as long as we kept the allowance, we could employ them for longer and pay them better. So I think that I think it's, it's a nice, you know, it's a nice sort of... Um, retail policy mm. you know for a certain demographic of people but you need to see a lot of detail i think they need to go into a proper policy review you know and i think open labor be prepared to engage and we've got a session at our conference on the future of work and, and i think that's going to be touched upon in that session be an interactive session with the unions so i think that we'd, we'd work on that in terms of um internal elections i mean you know let's be honest momentum are by far the biggest group in the Labour party they are probably 
10, 11 times, I don't know, 12 times, mm. I don't know exactly, I don't know what their membership stands at, at the moment. Um, they're uh, um, the biggest group in terms of membership. It's very diffuse, and what, what local groups want isn't what their national coordinating group want. There are, there are a big section of momentum who are pro having a public vote, and there's a big section of momentum who are mm. very opposed to it. I, I see that in my own constituency, in votes, you know, where there'll be votes on some things where everybody votes the same way and then there'll be votes on Europe and then it's split all over the room, you know? Not from open lay people, I might add, but, um, <laughs> but you know, from, from other, other wings of the party. So um, it'd be difficult to, to quantify. You know, I think, I think the, there are a lot of, lot of bridge, a lot of water going to the bridge until we're at that point, Absolutely. to be honest, yeah. Well, yeah, because with regards to, like, the, you know, the policy briefings those recent the set of three that they released to the mm. guardian and whatnot they weren't consulted by the uh, members the members no. weren't ever cleared on that and that's one element where you know open labor yeah. definitely has a more stringently democratic approach yeah i mean i mean i, I was thinking about this because um what happened recently is we, we obviously started our open labor started the committee elections and we're sort of halfway through that now and during that period, there was a, some sort of consultation with some sort of subset of momentum members about not have, about having two-year terms instead of one-year term and not having elections. And I was like, it's really interesting because like, Open Labour's got a constitution. To change constitution, change the rules, you basically you have to take it to a, uh, a policy conference or an annual conference, which we now hold. We start off once a year, now we hold twice a year. You know, um, And I was thinking actually thinking about this, and I was thinking about... Um, having a broader mandate, particularly as you get bigger, as an organisation gets bigger. And I can understand like, their difficulty. They've got, you know, whatever, 40, 50,000 members, whatever it is. Um, whether they, they can't get their members all in the room and do that. So there's an online, you know, play. and I was thinking about our electoral software, the election software, and thinking, well, actually, we could use that um, to, do, to do online votes for members, which would give our policymaking a bigger mandate. Not... Not for like if you submit a motion and everything goes because one it just wouldn't work. But if we had real big decision, real big decision, uh, a, a crucial decision, then we could go out and use online polling and, and the membership could decide. Um, and, and and it's about trying to open up that democracy. Hmm. So, um, but the bigger the organisation, the harder it is. And also, you know, like you know, momentum. We've got factions within momentum. There are the faction within, there's factions within the faction. You know, and it's I just you know I just. I'd like. I mean, you know, I would like, and I wouldn't like to be in that position. It's a, it's a mixed blessing. Well, I mean, the social yeah. review faction within Open Labour is already yeah. its own strong caucus. <laughs> um, but it's interesting that you mentioned that because there's murmurs of the membership being polled, the membership of the Labour Party being polled for um, yeah. a public vote. Yeah, what's I'm your view on that? Yeah, I'm yeah. very strongly support with that. Look, I, I was the first MP to call for a special conference. I wasn't the first MP to call for a, a members poll. I think um, a members poll is only advisory, and um, we've heard that one. Before. You know, yeah, yeah, you know, we had an advisory. <laughs> we had lots of advisory votes, don't we? Um, and you know, so I think it's a necessary. You know, I think it's 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 a good way for to get mass participation, and I think it would be a good idea. But then, obviously, you still have to have conference. You still have to have the the motion. You still you've got you know, if the NEC wanted to steer before their next NEC meeting, I think having an online poll is a good idea. But I don't think we should have an online poll and say that was an advisory online poll. The map drawing a line under the matter. When that's it, our policy's finished now. We we let you have a say. That's quite dangerous. So I think I think it's a useful tool to sort of I guess 
clear the air about what the membership's mm. actually position is and you know the actual approval that the current strategy yeah. has. Yeah, I mean, we had an online poll about um, bombing in Syria, and and you know you know it's, it was a very important issue whether you know the UK goes to war or not. I'm not mm. denigrating it, but the, the the direct effects of that on you know people in the United Kingdom, members of the Labour Party who live here, wouldn't there wouldn't would only be indirect effects. While Brexit is full of direct effects for the next 50 to 100 years you know I mean climate change might wash away the effects <laughs> of Brexit but let's assume they don't somehow you know it's going to have long running effects and so at this really crucial juncture the bit of time where we can actually do something about it not to go to lay party members seems like an anti-democratic move to me. There are murmurs additionally of a cabinet reshuffle. Do you think the names are actually all that important about getting people into a position and actually directing change in this party or is it more that their platform for their ideas isn't there because the members the MPs that would in theory push these radical changes mm. they have the ability to do so and you know you've seen Clive Lewis make a lot of yep. noise about the Green New Deal from the backbenchers He's actually a shadow treasury minister, but yeah, is, that, <laughs> but you wouldn't that, know I mean, it yeah, from, that, this from is the, true, uh, yeah. But the thing is, his yeah. media his exposure yeah. or lack yeah. thereof. That's, but yeah, mm. what what's your view on you know the necessity, quote unquote, of a cabinet reshuffle to put energy back in the party? Do you think it's a bit of a facade? I mean, I, th- I mean, do we need? A sh- it's difficult to say. Um, what what we need is is a conclusion to the policy we're talking about Brexit we need inclusion of the policy we are I mean we do have disagreements not disagreements we do have um, difference of opinion on on ownership models for instance relating to, to Green New Deal and, and how you get it achieved in some of the granular policy and you know and um, that that is being played out um, and so having some of those people who are leading that work in the shadow cabinet if it, that is our number one priority our number one long-term priority needs to be the climate emergency and no doubt and so do we need more voices in the shadow cabinet who um make that case than we do what's interesting is i might be wrong about this but i don't think i am that in the cabinet claire perry who is the um the energy business energy minister energy and climate change minister she she attends cabinet she i think she attends all of it Mm. I think, because uh, I've seen her in pictures, and it didn't seem to be particularly about climate change, the the, the, the meeting. Um, but our shadow engineer, climate change minister, who's probably the most knowledgeable person in this area in the PLP, is Alan Whitehead, and my I don't think he attends shadow cabinet. So you know, you, you have two treasury ministers going. It's fine, I could, shadow treasury. I completely agree with that, and that's how it works. But surely, if 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 the climate emergency is our number one priority, then we should also have two people who are dealing with that going to the. Um, shadow cabinet uh, from that department so if it's if the government's doing it so I do think we need to raise our game whether we need to move people round I don't know I don't think that's that important but we need to we need to show that we've got the people in the room who are leading the work so it's open labour conference coming up at the end of the month June yes. 29th is that correct that's correct yeah that June 29th Camden School for Girls 2 till 6 that was some very good plugging there and short short of a surprise DJ Alex Sobel set what can we expect from a Labour conference what we're, what we're trying to do is make um, the conferences less top down less speak heavy and more interactive and engaged so we are having an interactive session about the future of work um, we're involving Neil Foster from the GMB in that and we're going to have a, um, a grassroots 
uh, trade unionist involved. Um, but the idea is really is for people to come up with ideas. We're asking for we've got a very we've got a real big set of, of policies now. Position paper. It's very full. But there are some areas that are missing: um, foreign policy, cultural policy, some other areas. So we're inviting people to to, to make submissions at the moment. Submissions are open to the. 25th of June, um, any Open Labour member can make a submission, you can join and make a submission if you're interested, uh, and th there'll be debates on those, and discussion on those, and hopefully we'll pass some uh, things to add to the position paper, uh, probably a bit of a um, sorting out of our, our Brexit policy to make it a little bit more clear, because it's been built up over two or three conferences and things have moved on, a little bit like the Labour Party, we need a bit of clarity on our position. Um, and then, and then we're having a panel on Europe as well. Again, you know, it'll be short on on um, speeches and, and much, you know, floor questions and comments from the floor and responses to that. So we're trying to build an event where we're trying to engage as many people as possible in the room, not try and have too much hierarchy. Not we haven't got a big marquee keynote speaker because we're trying to give people more time because that takes you know it takes an hour out of your day and it's actually quite a short conference, four hours. So that's where we are. Let's see if that works. Because the traditional model of the Labour Party, the Fabians, the Co-op Party, all of those, you get your Jeremy Corbyn, your John McDonnell, your Keir Starmer, you know, and then if loads of other people. You sit for six to eight hours and everyone just speaks to you. You might get 30 seconds to ask a question if you're lucky and then you go home and you think, hey, what was my input into the day? And we're trying to move away from that. But um, the, the problem is it's quite hard to market that because everybody wants the big name to come and listen to. But they don't realise that actually they're just listening to lots of other people for quite a long time and then people suddenly become where's people out they think mm. why why am I going every year just to listen to lots of other people why when am I going to get my say and we're in a world now I think where we need to be a lot flatter and listen to people more um, and engage more and give people a chance actually to get set policy and then the open lay policy paper can you know we're going to use it in the party's um, manifesto making process in with other organisations use it to input so anything you bring in is in this past with or without amendment, you know, Open Labour will push out. It becomes our policy. It becomes policy of the many. Thank you very yeah. much. Well, yeah, hopefully we'll see you, see you down there in a few weeks. Absolutely. Thanks for, for coming in. Thank you for having us. Once again, we have been asking for your questions on Twitter and you have sent us in a fantastic variety of questions this week. Uh, Georgie Harris at Georgie underscore R Harris asks, Miriam, uh, what advice would you give to young women wanting to get involved in politics in such an off-putting and hostile environment? I think this is a really important question and I think we do need to check ourselves a lot more and think about what we're doing and the effect it has on like people who are just wanting to get involved and people who could one day be like the leaders of tomorrow. Um, and the one thing I'd say to you is keep going. Don't let anyone tell you that your voice is not worthwhile hearing and don't let anyone tell you that you're not good enough because you are. Um, and I'm really, really sorry. It's really awful. And please do reach out to like, especially other women because I know that like, I'm always happy to help with this sort of thing. And like, there's everything I could do to be a support. Um, because it is pretty rough out there and other women have been really one of the things which has really got me through like their support solidarity and encouragement like I've never really stood for a position or put myself forward for something that a woman hasn't asked me to do um or said you'd be good at um and like I find it really helpful as well to have like a really a, a, like a tight-knit supportive network of pals you can rant to that's really helpful um and making sure you take time to do self-care and also genuinely please do 
put yourself forward, especially if you don't think you're good enough, because you probably are. And there's probably a bloke out there who like thinks that they're already good enough um, and has less experience than you. So please do it. And like also like lean on the sisterhood. And when you get to the successful place that you deserve to be, because you're amazing, Georgie. I know Georgie, he's asked the question. Um, every one of us, I think, has responsibility to make sure that we're looking for other women and helping up other women as well. And then as well, a responsibility to make sure that we are always the better people. So when people are awful to us, we try and be good back. And that's really difficult. And I find that really hard sometimes, but hopefully eventually we can get through this healthscape. Obviously, because podcasts are uh, an audio medium, you can see that, but I was nodding very enthusiastically throughout that. I think that's some great advice there from Miriam. (laughs) Thank you. Julia, one of our other writers and editors at The Social Review asks, how can we properly tackle mental illness in young people and how do we avoid letting politics ruin our mental illness? So it's really important that we have more funding in our mental health services. The Tories have cut mental health services absolutely to the bone um, and especially there's a lack of funding for CAMS, uh, which is children and adolescents mental health services. Massive waiting lists. Like you don't get support unless you're at a really awful crisis stage and that's not good enough. And even when you're at crisis stage, there are often not enough beds in your part of the country and it's a postcode lottery of care and you just desperately need more funding, more resources, more help for the amazing doctors, nurses and support staff in mental health services. Um, as well, like I think we need a specialist kind of care for young adults because that doesn't exist. And when you're 18, you're put into a mental health unit with people of all ages and that can be really daunting if you've just turned 18, 19. There's a massive issue of churn as well between 18 and uh, between 17 and 18 year olds of, of like young people that drop out the system and this is a massive area that I really really care about and I think it's something that we desperately need to do a lot about. Thinking about young people engaging in in politics and how um, especially young women people who are part of religious and ethnic minorities how tiring it can be there's there's no harm in taking a break it's good to step back and you know um, the the significance of kind of working with each other and working together which ultimately as we know is the kind of foundational part of our understanding of what it means to be part of the labor movement to look after our our comrades our friends um as much as we uh as much as we can and um yeah the significance of building the networks and having the relationships and knowing when actually it's important to to take a step back and that's maybe more of a from the activist side or the kind of writing and thinking about it side than necessarily like policy legislation but yeah something i feel quite strongly about nonetheless building on this theme um stephen harper who you would have heard uh, talking in the football section of the podcast last week um asks how do we end the my people are right culture in within um factionism and which leads to people excusing horrible behavior within their own factions yeah i i really hate this culture 100 percent. like it's so frustrating that so many people look past bad things which they wouldn't accept because their mates are doing it and I think it's a sort of responsibility of all of us to like check ourselves and think about like the consequences of like what people's actions are and hold you know really strong principles about about these things like if someone is racist it shouldn't matter what faction they're in it shouldn't matter who their mates are it should be called out it's always unacceptable and as well the capacity for people to be forgiven and demonstrate learning and growth applies to everyone no matter their faction um so i think it's sort of the responsibility and i know this is a horrible conclusion but it's responsibility of all of us to be the better people 
and the fairer people and to show zero tolerance and consistently check ourselves and that's something I try and do a lot and it's difficult and exhausting and, and painful um but like honestly I, I mean also I, I just think we need to have a lot less bad faith there's a lot of bad faith there where like because someone's in a different faction or a faction you don't need to be in a faction at all they'll look at something that's being done and, and point at that person and see see the worst possible intent when sometimes you know that person's raising a policy point because they really care about it or maybe they don't know something about that policy point and I think just generally we need a culture of just more comradely behavior but also calling out the things that are wrong which is sounds sounds easy but it's probably harder in practice. I, I think the bad faith point's really important it was something that we definitely uh, were thinking about when we sort of started the website itself I think um, that there is a tendency to um, be very defensive on one side of your of your own and also to see everything that um, that any of your internal opposition say in in the worst possible light as Miriam said I think um, I think that's that's so unhelpful and it's so um, damaging and and it always sounds like you might being a bit wet when you say that you don't like factionalism but you can see right now exactly where it's leading um and i think everybody needs to be a little bit more open to the idea that we need to be calling out the people on our own sides when they are doing things wrong and we also need to be embracing what others across our movement have to offer i would agree 100 percent with what everyone else says and just say it requires moral courage and too often this has fallen upon women it's fallen upon uh religious minorities it's fallen upon ethnic minorities to you know for lack of a better metaphor to kind of sit there in the trenches and explain why X, Y, or Z is is offensive, or why that is unacceptable behaviour, or, or such and such, and um, you know, it's been a real dereliction of duty uh, from other people. So yeah, there's a there's a there's a need for everyone to kind of pull their act together. But I mean, Miriam, the way you have you know so for such a long time really slogged and worked hard on this it's it's very admirable but on the other hand it, it makes me very angry that you know you have to sit there on twitter and deal with kind of the 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 real under the darker undercurrent of that and it's it's just incredibly unfair on you that you should be exposed to all this so um yeah a bit of righteous indignation on my behalf <laughs> at ben swin asked who would you like, as in objectively the least bad, to see win the Tory leadership? And can an MP's voting record be judged as a true reflection of their opinion, considering the strength of the whipping system? Um, I think the second part of this question is, is perhaps more interesting than the first, because we're probably all in agreement on who is objectively the least bad. I think it's Rory Stewart. Do, people, do, do, do you guys also think it's Rory Stewart? Yeah, I agree. I mean, you know, for a Tory is always the, uh, the, the prerequisite <laughs> square brackets required that, but yeah. I'd rather have the inanimate carbon rod, but like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, guess, I guess Rory Stewart, if you have to pick one. Yeah, I mean, again, he's still bad, but look, look, the others are probably worse. So can an MP's voting record be judged as a true reflection of their opinion, considering the strength of the whipping system? So the problem for me is it goes beyond his 
voting record. So I think the problem with Rory Stewart is that he is fully signed up to the ideology that governs the the Conservative Party. And I think to an extent we've got into this weird place where suddenly we think that if someone is like a Thatcherite and socially liberal, then they're actually like a one nation Tory. And mm. and to me that that's not really what one nation conservatism is. I'm very suspicious of the phrase one nation conservatism. Anyway. I don't think it exists. No, I don't think that's it exists. That's my hot take. True one nation conservatism has never been tried. Um, <laughs> he probably doesn't isn't like this grifter that certain people on the left are trying to paint him out as. He, d- he probably certainly does believe that he's this uniting um, unity figure and all these things and he's probably not got malicious intentions. The problem is that he has fully signed up to sort of that neoliberal um, that sort of abstraction of like what hard choices mean and how it's important to be a grown-up when actually all this stuff just means fiscal cuts it means um it means austerity it means um welfare cuts it means uh, cutting public services it means all these things and and on on the one hand we're meant to go great uh this man seems sort of like a unity figure he seems like personally kind and great yeah he probably does but there's also like a collective kindness that's lacking um, with, with that wing of the Conservative Party and I think it's really important not to like sanitise a world view because of a charismatic frontman. One final question from John Elledge at The New Statesman. How do you cope with it all? All of it? Everything? How do we cope? I watch so many films. <laughs> Turning Twitter off and going for a walk. That's literally the only way sometimes, I think. It's really difficult. I'm not going to pretend it's not difficult. Like Politics has a massive impact on your mental health and it is really rubbish um i think having a strong support network um is really important or at least like pals you can like vent onto and rely on to check in that really helps and like taking the time you need to step back and also just like sometimes i give my twitter account to my boyfriend to block people like he doesn't obviously tweet for me but then he can go through and like block accounts so i don't need to deal with it it really does help as well when i get messages of support and that's something i'd say like if you see someone getting like any kind of abuse online if just messaging them they might not message back but they'll probably see it and like it really really helps i reread a game of thrones to um as my self-care um that's all i have to add on this discussion game of thrones is great big fan of the books you have oh miriam you're our number one guest (laughs) (laughs) just waiting for our spin-off podcast the westeros review where uh we just talk about a song of ice and fire for like five hours every week so uh (laughs) glad we've got our first guests in the bag i've just signed you up miriam you didn't didn't ask for that but i've decided that you're you're on the team again on the social review podcast we have our culture section where we discuss what we've been reading slash watching slash i don't know writing whatever joe is off for this bit but i'm joined once again by eugenie and miriam as well as social review writer and editor uh it's henry i think this is my turn to speak i am very unsure how all this works i tweet at our sanctuarist on twitter and i have a lot of opinions on things i don't really know about which is great eugenie and i have been talking x-men uh i saw dark phoenix um eugenie you have not seen dark phoenix yet right but i told you the plot so you basically have 
Yeah, my, my relationship with the X-Men films is I, I, I will always watch all of them. Um, I don't really care if I know everything that happens in them. So, um, you know, comics being what they are and all that. But yeah, always, always here for a good X-Men shenanigan. You know, 15 different timelines, five iterations of the same character. Nothing makes sense. All, all good. To me, the X-Men series is just such a weird, like, embodiment of everything that's both right and everything that's wrong in uh superhero movie culture stuff um i don't know eugenie what do you think on that yeah i agree i mean what lots of people kind of forget actually is that the x-men movies were the originals of like the superhero genre certainly in the modern period uh, god i sound like you can tell i've been working on my dissertation today um <laughs> <laughs> uh it's a uh, you know, uh, X-Men, the first one, comes out in 2000. I mean, you've had the Blade movies beforehand and a few other ones, but they're the first real attempt at, like, temple franchises. And, um, you know, the kind of cultural impact of how much of a big success X-Men was when no one was kind of expecting it to be, um, kind of going from strength to strength, and then this real, like, well... Um, I think lots of people said that First Class, when that came out... Uh, not First Class, sorry... Um, that the last stand when that came out that that was like potentially the death of it for not being a particularly good movie then first class comes out a few years later reboots everything uh new young interesting hot actors a lot of them kind of on the precipice of like becoming like incredibly famous like jennifer lawrence being the most obvious one but then you end up in the weird situation you're in now where like jennifer lawrence who plays a character whose entire characterization should be that she has blue skin and she is proud of that um just doesn't do that anymore because her character um because jennifer lawrence doesn't want to do the makeup anymore which i guess which is, is fair, fair enough. enough um like if you were to sit in that chair for like seven hours yeah morning yeah to look blue but yeah so you just get in these like really weird um these kind of really weird knots about it but i don't know they always um they always entertain me and x-men 2 is a film that i've seen enough times you know being the first film i ever bought on dvd with my own money really yeah yeah Wow. Um, being a movie that I love enough that I basically annoy anyone every time, anytime I ever watch it because I just like say the lines with the characters. It's um yeah, as you can tell, I'm a really great person to watch films with. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm a bit more ambivalent to the original Brian Singer ones than I think you are. Like I'm kind of like, I recognize X Two is like kind of good, but I'm just like very indifferent. Um, and also because Brian Singer is uh a very dodgy man i don't know how to say this without uh, a dodgy and life. litigious man so we yes. should uh yes. say that we <laughs> we uh give him a google dear listeners maybe we, we say, should leave we it at nothing. that uh, <laughs> I, I, allegations I have, only uh, yeah i have to say i share your um ambivalency about him the person it's it's a very morally yes. complicated relationship i have with oh with god X2. the x x-men <laughs> one and x-men two truly the most embarrassing sentence i've said all day but i stand by it it's i'm living my truth you know i've never seen the x-men movies but is Magneto not the villain? Is that not an important plot point in these these things? I mean, yeah, it reminds me of a famous uh, Tumblr post, which is um, Magneto's never done anything wrong. And then someone says, um, yeah, but he's killed like, you know, if you go on his Wikipedia page, the list of people he's killed is like multiple pages long. And then the original reposter replies, yeah, as I said, Magneto's never done anything wrong. Um, so that's basically, I mean, a part of this is just me enjoying fictional characters with highly dubious moral tendencies. Miriam, have you, uh, have you 
been watching anything good recently i uh i take it you're not here on 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 the x-men uh uh, wagon as it were i like the x-men i'm just really really bad at getting to the cinema which is an issue so i tend to watch things when they come up later and then listen to like the komodo may film podcast i feel like i'm sort of somewhat up to date um but like i've been watching black mirror which has been really really good um i mean to be honest like a lot of Black Mirror episodes, I feel like I need to like sit in a quiet room afterwards and like stare into the distance and contemplate existence because um, they sort of like leave you quite shook. Um, <laughs> and this series, I've got to say, didn't leave me as shook, which was a surprise. Like I enjoyed it, but I'm not like thinking about what they mean for our existence afterwards. I don't know if you guys felt the same thing if you've seen it. I felt the same thing really powerfully in like particularly the first one I thought that the the, yeah, the striking vice one which I thought were like a very classic black mirror premise but we went with this really nice bittersweet but also I thought very true to life ending which had a really a really nice quality to it which you probably wouldn't have expected of black mirror 5 years ago I don't know it doesn't seem that black mirror was used to those kind of uh you know, uh, realistic, gritty, but still with a with hope in them endings. And it's nice to see that now, I think. Definitely. It was a really interesting episode. I mean, one of the things that was quite depressing about it was, like, on social media, some of the reaction was, like, pretty awful. Like, I saw a great, great tweet about it, and I apologise to whoever sent it, because I'm not going to credit them, because I can't remember. But they were like, you guys are getting annoyed about, like, two dudes um, getting on through a video game, but, like, you were totally fine with a man and having sex with a, ki- a pig. Um, I saw that, that tweet. That's kind of annoying. <laughs> I think Black Mirror is basically struggling to figure out what function it serves in the pop culture landscape um, now because its function it served in the uh, like early 2010s was that like it was to critique technology. It was like, oh, these scary things could happen one day. All these things are now just reality. Um, so. Black Mirror can't fulfill that same function, so instead it's got to go to these more optimistic stories. But very few of the episodes since it moved over to Netflix and has had to deal with this kind of like um, cultural shift have been as impressive as the first two series in my mind. I think that the thing about Black Mirror is that when like in the early 2000s, late 2010s landscape, and I cannot remember when the first series came out, it felt like um, the uh, like cultural landscape was like, oh, technology can do anything. And like, in particular, new hardware is coming all the time. Like, you know, the smartphone and everything along those lines is like the constant revolution. So what we can actually think about is, well, what happens if, and like, it was kind of a relentless techno-optimism and Black Mirror's purpose was originally to be the reaction against that, to be the backlash and to be as you know, Black Mirror is designed to be the anti-Apple keynote uh, fans who are like going on about how Apple are going to bring peace to the world or whatever. Like they are designed to do that. And now we know that it's kind of humans who make the problems with technology. I think that Black Mirror wants to be a much more human-centered story. One of the episodes from the sort of newer series, which I definitely pull out as one which maybe picks up that legacy a bit better is um, Hated in the Nation, which is about um, social media and about what happens when people are hated and targeted for that hate. Um, and that was one of the more modern episodes where I actually like had to sit down and be like, whoa, this, what does this say about our culture and the way in which people are sort of like targeted online? And, and we sort of saw echoes in that, for instance, of like the Gatwick drone gate when that poor couple who didn't actually set the drone, if there was even a drone, out and um, were sort of like targeted online. Um, so that was really interesting. Um, but I agree that sort of the legacy of 
is this um, what what can go wrong with technology has sort of been lost. Another one from season three, which is a bit of a controversial one, but I've always loved Shut Up and Dance as just like another example of, and that's obviously such a morally complex uh, storyline as well. It feels like it's exactly this kind of question, like ultimately it's not technology which really has anything to do with that episode. It's like that's just the framework which enables people to do bad and strange and disturbing things to other people and i think that's where black mirror really gets interesting because charlie brooker is a great observer of people and sometimes he's not quite as on point as a like technological prophet and i guess that technological prophecy always gets a bit dated as well like 50s futurism i definitely agree with you henry shut up and dance is also one of my favorite episodes um one of the things i was thinking i'd be keen to get your guys thoughts on this is that black mirror always excels when it is explicitly uh british show um so the episodes like shut up and dance the first two series um one of the reasons they're strong is because british culture is so innately pessimistic about um well everything but also technology and about what technology can do so the the very idea of a techno pessimistic series just fits better within a british setting In in terms of american culture uh it's much more like optimistic i mean i know this is like incredibly vague and all encompassing um but like on broad terms it's it's a bit more optimistic about about what technology can do and i just feel that 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 someone like black mirror doesn't really fit as well in that environment yeah and i think there's all there's like the great irony which um is that black mirror this fundamentally and it's fundamentally this kind of alternative weird edgy like who gives a comedy writer, you know, a budget to go off and do this thing. It's fundamentally this like weird channel four thing, which has now moved over to one of the world's massive tech giants. And like, to be fair in the, uh, in Bandersnatch, it does kind of, it does nod to that a little bit. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of really behind on Black Mirror. I think I found it so relentlessly bleak. I kind of stopped engaging with it, but um, I really like San Junipero. And I think that's kind of emblematic in my opinion. I, I tell you what you mean about the English stuff. Like, I remember watching White Rabbit when that aired on Channel 4 back in, what was it, like 2012? And it, like, being, Great like, episode. emotionally scarring. I couldn't sleep afterwards. Like, very, very difficult to watch. But um, I, and I always think, to be honest, the most successful episodes of it are always ones which are rooted in the, in the characterization, the human interactions, and the technology is kind of like a secondary, you know, the tech itself isn't the plot it's about the you know that's relationship with the kind of a really strong characterization um and i think that's where you see the success of some episodes and the failure of other episodes which i think are more like gimmick the gimmick i mean maybe that's a bit um that's slightly unfair but you know they're kind of centered on like oh here's like this week's dystopian thing um versus the ones like San Junipero is all about that relationship and obviously the technology is a really important part in that but that episode lands because you it really sells all of that I mean that's that's my take but (laughs) but I think the other thing is that Black Mirror is really effective when it is kind of either laser focused on a kind of human domestic even drama or when it's really laser focused on exploring the unintended consequences of the kind of Silicon Valley utopianism of the idea that like oh, if we can connect with our loved ones or whatever, we'll all be much happier. But actually, you know, there is a lot of, or, you know, the um, you can see, like, White Bear is actually not that unrealistic as someone being like, this is a technical solution to all justice problems. And so from then on, you can kind of see the, the relentless skewering of that. And there is a satirical element to that, but it's obviously incredibly dark satire. 
episode comes to an end. Thank you very much to all my co-hosts, Joe, Eugenie, and Henry. Big thanks to Miriam Merwich, the National Chair of Young Labour, for coming on and talking to us this week, as well as to William, uh, who you would have noticed was absent from the panel because he was journeying up to London to interview the distinguished Alex Sobel MP. And a massive, massive thank you to Alex for agreeing to talk with us this week. It's also Eugenie's birthday today. Um, I've tried to find a usable happy birthday song, but I couldn't. And then I thought about singing it myself. But you know what? I'm going to spare you all that so uh happy birthday music you heard is composed by kevin mcleod and is sweet of her mouth as per and you will hear us all again next thursday have a good week goodbye